It should come as no surprise that downtown Cincinnati was hit hard by the COVID-19 pandemic and the shockwaves it sent through public life, as well as the lingering effects of things like hybrid and remote work policies. So how has Cincinnati's downtown recovered, and how does that compare to the rest of the nation? Also in the news, did you know that two of the year's best inventions were created in Cincinnati? This is Above the Fold. Welcome to Above the Fold, the podcast from the Cincinnati Business Courier. Do you ever notice how most podcast hosts introduce the show the same way every week, week after week? I've seen some, like comedian Neil Brennan, express frustration with that, saying, you know the drill by now. But maybe you don't. Maybe this is your first time listening to us. If so, welcome to The Fold. Pun completely intended. If you're not familiar, Above the Fold is some old newspaper lingo referring to the stories at the top of the folded newspaper, the biggest headlines meant to get people to pick the paper up from a newsstand. Those are the stories we try to feature here on this weekly podcast, along with interviews that introduce you to the personalities behind the news. I'm your host, Andy Brownfield, joined by Courier Editor-in-Chief Tom Nemeropoulos. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Andy. Happy to be here. So, as we record this just in advance of Halloween, you have uh, stirred the pot with your weekly Five Things column in, uh, you know, introducing some controversial opinions about candy. I was not trying to be controversial. I was not trying to, to trick anyone with my with my survey of the best candy bars, emphasis on the bars. But what I was trying to get at there was, you know, which I guess which, and I don't, I can't even say this, which chocolates because that's not true because I had payday on there, which is not a chocolate covered candy bar. Uh, really, I just wanted everyone to tell me that Reese's peanut butter cups, not Reese's, Reese's peanut butter cups are the best. Halloween candy, second best behind uh, Butterfingers. So is there is there a candy? Is that what you will take from your kids' bags every every year? Yes, every year. <laughs> so my dad always took Smarties from our bags, which I think he was doing us a favor. And I don't know if he saw it that way, but uh, that was one candy I was glad to be rid of. Yeah, I'd be okay if if that happened to my my bag of candy as a kid. So the story I teased up top. How has Cincinnati's vitality recovered following the widespread shutdowns of public life during COVID-19, and how does that compare to the rest of the country? Well, first, I want to tell you that apparently Big Brother is real. I think George Orwell is right about more than we give him credit for. I say that because the uh, University of Toronto School of Cities, alongside the Institute of Governmental Studies at UC Berkeley, has been analyzing GPS data for more than 18 million smartphones in North America, and that's how they determined just how vital different cities' downtowns were compared to pre-pandemic totals. Andy, I operate under the assumption that everyone knows everything that I do uh, because of cell phones. I just assume that everyone has every piece of trackable data that uh, can come out of there. Yeah, and that's why like, I, I understand the desire for privacy. It's, it's, it's vitally important. But when people say, well, hey, you know, the Chinese government can track you through TikTok, it's like, okay, what, what are they going to do with that information? I mean, it, they, they want to know what I'm, I'm, uh, what I'm TikToking when I'm uh, eating my breakfast in the morning. Is that going to help their, is that going to hinder our national security? Potentially, Andy. If, if they're watching what you're watching, they might, they might have more intelligence than, than uh, would be healthy. Well, be that as it may. Uh, that tracking of our GPS data is how we know that visitors to downtown Cincinnati are only at 64% of where they were in 2019. Do you feel that's Do you feel that's accurate? Anecdotally, walking around downtown, you and I are both here uh, pretty often for for sometimes five times a week. 
Yeah, and you know what? I do think that downtown streets feel a bit more empty than they did pre-pandemic. I was a big fan of a lot of the programming that went on at Fountain Square. I mean, before the pandemic, on Tuesdays, you'd have uh, stalls set up all over Fountain Square with different restaurant vendors selling food. And then on Wednesday, you'd have food trucks. And then I think Thursday, I might be confusing Tuesday and Thursday. Thursday might have been International Day, where they had different ethnic cuisines on the square and and it was just packed there were lines stretching for minutes to get food and now i don't see that kind of life in fountain square during the week uh, anymore yeah yeah there's definitely uh the energy level is different different days of the week fridays mondays a little lower tuesday wednesday thursday it feels better but it's still not quite what it was pre-pandemic and I think that's evidenced by some stories that we've written recently, like Walgreens. They, they're closing one of their two downtown Cincinnati locations, and that just speaks to the vitality of the weekday traffic there. I mean, if Walgreens, a convenience store and pharmacy, can't be supported by daily business downtown, that says one of two things. One, that the residential density is not there, which I don't think is true because we've continually been adding more and more residences downtown. But two, that the weekday business traffic is not there. Yeah. You know, the the basin is home to roughly 90,000 jobs in in terms of where people work. But I don't think 90,000 people are coming down here every day. And that means that uh, retailers like Walgreens and others, you know, can't. It's It gets harder to make sense to have two locations in their case. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, in our, our own building, the the coffee vendor in the lobby just decided to to pack it up, which is a, a big amenity for office workers like us. Yes. So, you know, Cincinnati, 64% of the traffic is back. That places us 57th out of 66 stu- cities that the study looked at. And the national average isn't much better. It's at 74% of da- traffic across all 66 cities that they looked at downtowns has returned. Cincinnati still ranks ahead of three of its Midwestern peers in Columbus, Louisville, and St. Louis, but uh, Pittsburgh beat us, which, why do we have a a rivalry with them? Does that have something to do with Ben Roethlisberger? It's sports. It's a sports. Okay. (laughs) So according to Karen Chappell, who's the director of the School of Cities program, the recovery has a lot to do with the diversity of downtown economies. If a downtown was really driven by finance and tech, they could still see robust recovery if those sectors aren't all the way back, so long as the downtown had a strong entertainment, education, or health sector, ideally a combination of those. Now, the Cincinnati Regional Chamber has recently launched a new initiative, the Meet Me Downtown initiative, to try to lure people back downtown by offering incentives and discounts at downtown businesses to, to get people to come back. Yeah, Andy, I, I still think there's a lot to be said for, you know, obviously people in our industry, but people in lots of businesses for the serendipity of being downtown. Uh, happened this morning. I ran into Brendan Call from the chamber uh, while I was getting coffee because I had to go outside of our building to get a cup of coffee. But if I hadn't been downtown, would I have run into him and had a great conversation? Probably not. No, no. And I think that's you know, kind of what this study is getting at. I mean, it's GPS data, so it can't tell us what people are doing downtown. We don't know if they're in the office or coming down for entertainment, dining, uh, just going out. But downtown for so long has been kind of the beating heart of of Cincinnati's economy, just in the, the sheer number of businesses down here and just the amount of commerce that happens. And it's, you know, it's not... It's not where it used to be. 
So, Tom, what do you think is the biggest salary paid to a professional soccer player, speaking of sports? I don't know who the top I, – I would imagine it's uh, not an American soccer player. Yeah, so I know that sports stars are very highly paid, but I don't know doodly squat about soccer, how it compares to other sports. So had you asked me, I would have thought the highest paid soccer player probably makes around $400,000. Personally, I don't think anybody should make more than $400,000 annually. I mean, the President of the United States' salary is $400,000. Now, you're telling me that Lionel Messi has a more important job than the President of the United States? Uh, obviously, yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> Apparently, because he makes $20 million, or at least he did last year, according to the MLS Players Association, which recently came out with a salary guide for players in the league who are under contract as of September 15th. And one thing that surprised me was that Messi's guaranteed pay for the year was more than the entire payroll of FC Cincinnati. So Messi's guaranteed compensation was $20.4 million, though his, his actual pay is really a lot higher than that. I mean, they think it's valued at between $50 million and $60 million a year, and that comes from his salary, signing bonus, his equity in the team, and that really puts him on par with the highest-paid player, highest players in the NFL and the NBA. I mean, 50 to $60 million, does that kind of put him on par to what Joe Burrow's making? Yeah, so Burrow's new contract pays him like what is it, fifty-seven plus million a year when that when that kicks in next year. So yes, that's it's in that realm. Uh, but if you look at world soccer players, this is really not the, even close to the top. Uh, I was just looking up Cristiano Ronaldo, who's the top, the highest played soccer player in the world, is expected to have his earnings top two hundred and sixty million dollars. That just blows my mind. I, mean, I I could I could retire off that much. And then some. So, meanwhile, FC Cincinnati's total payroll is only at about $14.8 million. So you, you could afford, you know, two or three FC Cincinnati's with what Messi's getting paid alone. And meanwhile, the highest earner in FC Cincinnati is Luciano Acosta, who made $2.2 million in annual guaranteed, guaranteed annual average compensation. And the next five highest paid players earn between $1 million to $1.5 million a year. So what do you think will happen to the team's payroll given the season they've had this year? I mean, I don't know enough about the business of soccer, professional soccer, to see how much the salaries would climb based on performance and how well they've done. I don't know if it's as quick as, as it could be or if this is more of a – it's more contract-based. So over time, next time they come up for a contract – they'll see a, a bump in pay. Well, I mean, they did go from three abysmal seasons to winning the Supporters' Shield this year, so that's not for nothing. And, you know, any of you uh, subscribers of the Business Career, Courier, keep an eye out. Uh, Steve Watkins is going to have a story on the cover this week showing off just what that winning season means for Cincinnati and for the team. Yeah. And you say you don't sport. <laughs> You know what? Being an editor at this paper has forced me to know, learn more about sports than I ever thought I would know. It seems like we've had a lot of lawsuit stories to talk about in the podcast in recent weeks, and this one's no different. On October 16th, a Hamilton County Common Pleas judge declined to dismiss the city of Cincinnati's lawsuit against Vinebrook Homes, the largest single-family landlord in the county and the owner of nearly 1,000 homes in the region, more than 5% of the housing stock in some communities. Declining to dismiss a suit may seem like a turn of the screw, but it's a legal victory for the city. 
Cincinnati sued Dayton-based Vinebrook and its Cincinnati subsidiaries, claiming that they breached the settlement agreement that stemmed from a 2021 lawsuit, as well as for claims of public nuisance, civil conspiracy, and intentional repeated violations of the Ohio Landlord-Tenant Act and Cincinnati Municipal Code. The city of Cincinnati claims that Vinebrook owes $606,000 in unpaid fines, fees, and private lot abatement costs and Greater Cincinnati Waterworks charges. The city also argues that Vinebrook's leases illegally require its tenants to pay for things like water and sewage flooding in basements and garages, pest control, and the cost of evictions. The city first sued Vinebrook in 2021, reaching a settlement that required the company to fix problems at its properties and cease certain eviction practices. Vinebrook, for its part, says that it is consistently working to maintain the condition of its homes and investing heavily in the upkeep and remediation issues when identified. In its own legal filings, it wrote that the city of Cincinnati could only point to 13 code violations in its portfolio of 964 properties. Now, Vinebrook's also been targeted by U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown from Cleveland, who introduced legislation aimed at it and other institutional investors who are buying up single-family homes in the state. I think some 4,000 single-family homes in Hamilton County are owned by institutional investors like this. Yeah, Andy, this is really a hot topic right now in the city of Cincinnati and the state of Ohio. Uh, this idea that, you know, Cincinnati has, uh, I would, I, would I, don't know, I guess, a limited housing stock. We are not building a lot of new housing, especially when you look at our rates of new construction compared to our peer cities. Uh, I was looking at stats yesterday. I think Cincinnati, the region, built about 6,000, 6,100 homes last year. Columbus built 12,000, so double. They're not growing it. They're growing faster than us, but not at double the rate. Um, so with, with fewer houses being built, and then you have institutional buyers coming in and owning these homes, uh, I think there's a lot of attention being paid to the owners, uh, to these owners, to see how they are operating, how they're practicing, how they're treating their tenants. And uh, obviously, in this case, the city of Cincinnati and others feel that Vinebrook is uh, not operating in the way they should be. Yeah, Sherrod Brown, in his legislation, is seeking to prevent institutional investors who he claims are skimping on maintenance and preventing families from being able to buy their own first homes uh, he's trying to prevent them from deducting interest cost and depreciation from their portfolio of properties, which I imagine is, is aimed at eliminating some of the financial incentives for just holding on to these properties for rent instead of fixing them up and, and really maintaining them. Definitely. So, Tom, I'm asking this question knowing full well that you wrote this story that we're about to talk about, but for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to ask you to serve as a foil to serve up the next topic. Ready. All right. So how many million-dollar and up homes do you think are on the market in Cincinnati right now? Um, not as many as I would have thought, honestly. I, th- I thought there would have been more. Really? Because I I was kind of shocked at how many million-dollar-plus homes we have for sale currently, especially just given the housing crunch. I guess the luxury market is different than the normal residential market, but there are well over 100 million dollar homes listed in greater Cincinnati right now. But, you know, so the reason I said that I feel like that's kind of low is uh, comparatively, you know, we did this story here in Cincinnati, but uh, our sister paper in Columbus did a similar story. And in some of their top markets, they had like 50 homes in like one neighborhood in the million dollar and up price range. So I feel like Cincinnati, again, is is kind of it has this tight uh, housing inventory all the way, you know, top to bottom. 
Yeah, and you say fifty million dollar homes in just one neighborhood. That is 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 wild compared to what we have because you you rounded up all the neighborhoods that have at least five million dollar homes listed for sale currently, and there are only fifteen of those neighborhoods. And the top one only has a dozen listings. And you would think it would be Indian Hill, but it wasn't. Yeah, you. I honestly, uh, when I was when I was asking for this data, I was expecting. Indian Hill to be number one, followed closely by Hyde Park. Uh, and then I thought third would be Anderson Township. And I was wrong. No, the East End is the grand winner here with $12 million homes for sale. And what do you think accounts for that? So there's a couple of things. Uh, in the East End, you had the Homerama development, Walworth Junction, that uh, was uh, came online, I believe, in 2020. So a lot of great homes that have been built there. And then the other thing is you've seen a lot of redevelopment in the East End along, like, close to the river. So uh, some developers are building these spectacular townhomes uh, that are listed at like one one point one million dollars and they've got river views and uh, you know beautiful spaces so I think that is why you've you've got 12 there in the east end yeah my wife Hannah and I we had our wedding reception at the Highmark in the east end and it's a place that we would bike to from her apartment over the Rhine when we were dating and we saw a lot of these townhomes come up and a lot of them are in an area that was probably seen as pretty dumpy at one point. I mean, there are a lot of, of small, smaller houses that you can tell were probably more blue-collar blue workforce housing for the nearby industrial areas. But with that industry moving away from the river with the necessity of, of river shipping no longer being a thing, I think having those river views are seen more of an amenity than a necessity anymore. Yeah. I also feel like that, that part of town... Um probably was a victim of flooding more often of like the mm. river flooding and i feel like and uh, i should probably talk to an expert on this before i say it but i feel like uh management of the ohio river flooding has gotten much better it's it's rare that we have a flood of that level where homes in that uh, part of town have floodwaters in them but all those townhomes i should say are built to withstand that because they have uh, the garages on the first floor to help raise them up out of the floodplain yeah and you know, i mentioned the high mark named for said flooding because they have a a mark in the building to where the i think was the record highest flooding of the ohio river where it crested so you know in general cincinnati's housing inventory is still extremely low and we talked before about how uh, pre-pandemic a five and a half to six month stock of housing on the market was considered a balanced market and how for a long time now it's been below one month now, it's crawled up to 1.7 months, but still, it is far from a balanced market residentially. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you're looking for a house right now, it is definitely not a buyer's market. As someone who's looking for a house, you're right. So, Tom, were you a camp kid growing up? I was not a camper. Well, no, I mean, like, summer camp. I also did not go to summer camp. I, the only summer camps I did uh, as a kid were, like, sports camps at uh, local the local high schools. So what did you do during the summers? Well, so growing up, my family, we either, I would say we either went on a vacation or we did a project. So projects. Oh, yes. So like we would rebuild, we would rebuild the walls around when you're, we ripped down an entire railroad tie wall and rebuilt it with bricks, uh, cinder block, big, you know, landscape blocks. So that was always kind of the, the summer. It was either we got to go somewhere fun or we did a, a large project that would take, you know, 
a lot of the uh, a lot of our free time for the summer. I really hope my wife isn't listening to this podcast. <laughs> So my parents sent us to a ton of camps during the summer months. There was nature camp at Stanbury Park in Mount Washington where we played with clay in the creek bed and, and found a small animal skeleton in the creek. And for some reason, we thought it was a, a pig or a wild boar. But, you know, looking back now, I have no reason to believe that there were any boar roaming Mount Washington. And there was summer camp at Chief Logan Reservation, a Boy Scout sleepaway camp where we learned archery and first aid and campfire songs. But another camp I went to was an inventor's camp. And we were told to bring something to the camp that we could use to make an invention. And I brought one of those old wood-paneled GE clock radios. you remember those? No. Oh, man. I feel like they were everywhere in the 90s, and they just had, like, the most grating alarm. But it, it woke you up, and that's for sure. But as a, as a child of the 90s, I thought that you could take some circuit boards and slap them together with duct tape and wires and have an invention that did stuff. And it turns out that was not the case. I think that the camp's organizers were thinking about having us invent something more practical, like a simplified Rube Goldberg machine, something where you move a lever and then it turns on your toaster or whatever. Hmm. Speaking of inventions, did you know that two of Time Magazine's top inventions of 2023 came from Cincinnati? I did not. I wasn't reading my business career this for this episode. No, apparently not. So yes, I mean, Time Magazine, they rounded up... The, the, the biggest inventions that came out of the United States this year, and one of them was from a local Miami University-founded startup called Mad Rabbit. Now, Mad Rabbit, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, you don't have any tattoos, though. You're always wearing long sleeves, and I don't know, maybe you could you know, roll up the sleeves and just show like a wicked you know, tableau across your arm, but uh, Mad <laughs> Yeah, sadly, I I had always uh, threatened to get a tattoo, and I've never I've never gotten one. Well, you know, a big part of you know, getting a tattoo because you're you're literally stabbing deep into your epidermis and depositing ink splotches, and it is essentially an open wound. So, what Mad Rabbit does, they've developed a line of skincare products for taking care of a tattoo because if you don't. The tattoo can fade, the ink can kind of spread into other areas, and it won't, just won't look right. It can, you know, heal poorly. It, it's essentially a scar on your body. So they've developed this line that is supposed to help with that healing process to keep tattoos looking crisp and fresh for as long as possible. And Time was so impressed by that that they named it one of the best inventions of 2023. Now this other one, I think I'm a little bit more excited about, is a flying vehicle something that i would almost describe as like the speeder bikes from star wars yes uh, these are really cool and i want one so the company's called rise and they've developed the recon which is an ultralight electric v electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicle or evtol and it was first introduced in may of last year and it retails for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars plus tax and delivery so this thing looks like I mean, it looks like kind of a, a speeder bike with about six propellers arrayed around it, and it's got a range of 20 to 25 miles, and it can reach 63 miles per hour, and it can take off and land in the water. And because of the way that it's constructed and regulated, you don't need a full pilot license to, to fly one of these things. Which has got to be safe, right? I mean, no. Uh, these do look, uh, I guess the way I would describe it is like a drone on steroids, kind of like the drones that you would, you know, fly around in your backyard, but that just, you know, big enough to, to fly it yourself inside of it. 
Yeah, and and uh, as both of us child children of the late eighties and nineties, I think there was long this promise brought on by movies like Back to the Future Part Two, Part Two, that w- we would have flying vehicles, and I think this is the first step in that direction. This week on the podcast, we've got Elizabeth Pierce of the Cincinnati Museum Center. Housed in arguably the most iconic building in Cincinnati, Union Terminal, which was used as the inspiration for the Justice League's Hall of Justice, Pierce talks about showcasing our region's history. Not just our natural history, but the history of our local businesses and of the indigenous peoples who lived here before European settlers. As well as bringing about big blockbuster exhibitions like The Science of Pixar or Brictionary, featuring the world of Lego. This is Elizabeth Pierce on Buffalo Fold. Your mic might be off. We can just do the podcast like that. That's fine by me. <laughs> Why does Tom sound like he's in the cave? You're not at the museum. Oh, nope. do I got to plug you in now? Try Were now. you a sound engineer before you Hello? did this? No, oh, look, there you are. Is that me? Yeah, I've had to teach myself how to be a sound engineer, audio editor, sound effects guy. It's important to keep learning throughout your life. Yeah. Except the sound effects didn't work. Oh. <laughs> that makes me, I got egg on my face now. Not on cue. The ba dum You know what? That's okay. We don't need. So what are you listening to from a podcast standpoint now? So I listen to Smart Smartless, yeah. obviously, and then Fly on the Wall, which is an SNL-centric. Okay. Uh, it's uh, Dana Carvey, who I love as a stand-up yeah. comedian, and David Spade, who's not as great. But uh, So I listen to that. And then I just started Ologies. Which is a science yes, based. Yes, I've I've dipped in and out of that at different yeah. times. Yeah. Okay. What about you? What are you listening to? I listen to interview podcasts um, mostly because after talking to very important people with very important jobs all day, I just want to turn my brain off and and hear what Kim Kardashian has to say. <laughs> I do understand that. <laughs> Uh, no, I also listen to Smartless and uh, WTF with Mark Maron. Yeah, yeah. It's um, that kind of thing. I mean, the Smartless guys are very entertaining and like brain candy. Yeah, it's yeah. Absolutely. I always call it McDonald's. Like people have McDonald's for, for different things, and that for me is like I like McDonald's TV sometimes. Mm-hmm. Where it's, this is just, it's, I know it's not good for me, but damn, is it entertaining? And I feel good. So yeah, yeah. They, I chuckle. They make me laugh. So what are you listening to? Well, that's what we were talking about on the way up here. So I do listen to Smartless, but I listen. I was my new favorite thing is Julia Louis Dreyfus has a show called Wiser Than Me, and so she's talking to women who are um, older than her. Although Diane von Furstenberg gave her a new phrase uh, in the episode, which is uh, instead of "How old are you? How long have you lived?" Instead of aging gracefully, are you living gracefully? Right. I like so, that. So women who have lived for a while who are wiser than Julia Louis Dreyfus. <laughs> I, I have to imagine it's a pretty small pool. Well, Jane Fonda, I mean, Elizabeth, Isabel on Eliande, you know, just, yeah, interesting people. But she's she's pretty good at doing the whole repartee thing with them. Excellent. As yeah. you could expect her to be. Oh, yeah. yeah. Her interview with Dave Letterman on his show was fantastic. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, these are fun to watch. Yeah, so I, I don't know if you remember this, but we spoke several years ago. Uh, I interviewed you at the museum, and I think you talked you talked to me about podcasts then. What, what was I saying there? Splendid Table and all my foodie podcasts, probably. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and another thing that you said that just stuck out to me, and I still remember 
uh, now is no, that... No, I'm terrified. <laughs> <laughs> no, is that growing up that uh, on road trips, your dad used to always stop at every brown sign. Oh, yes. <laughs> Are you putting that to work in your own family? Uh, you know, no, that is... I think I've only I've only forced myself to do that once. Forced myself. <laughs> uh, the Serpent Mound, I was going up to Athens where I went to college. Yeah. And I saw that. I was like, you know, I'm going to do that. I'm going to stop there by Serpent go. Mound. Was worth it. So my dad is an OU grad, was an OU grad. So, you know, maybe he was influenced by all of that. Driving from Delphus, Ohio, all the way to Athens, you know, and back. Yeah. There's, there's it's a, not an easy route. And, and when you when you keep your eye out for them, there are a lot of these historical sites throughout Ohio. Yes, yes. Well, this is one of the things that uh, I'm working on, too, with the Ohio 250 Commission. And, like, what is Ohio going to do and how is it going to celebrate the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And so the work for the semi-quincentennial is underway now with uh, grant dollars now starting to flow out to um, small history organizations to decide, like, what's the planning? How, how is each county going to commemorate this? What's the before um, and after? So it's like 250 plus. So you are able to reach back in time to the earliest people who have been here celebrating that history and then how is that informing what Ohio should do past 2026 and you know where should where where should the United States be headed after 250 years so pretty heady questions for for an anniversary yeah so hopefully we'll well think about 1776 uh, 1976 rather when the the bicentennial came out and like the rise of colonial williamsburg you guys are probably too young to remember any of that (laughs) as i look at you now i actually i I have fond memories of colonial williamsburg my parents took us once and i i I was in love and completely enamored by everything there my Biggest memory, though, was I had a mohawk at the time. Oh, nice. And I had just shaved it, so uh, my hair was growing back in a buzz cut, and it looked really bad, and I was self-conscious about it the whole time, but continue. Well, just like during the bicentennial, um, there was this just absolute pulsating energy around American history, and that was probably the like zenith moment of colonial Williamsburg in visitation and kind of destination. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of excitement around does the uh, Ohio 250 and America 250 create that kind of energy for understanding history, understanding civics, understanding kind of how America continues to evolve um, and can we channel that in a positive and energetic way? I was going to say, do you feel like America could use that more than ever maybe? Absolutely. A little reminder of kind of what are the founding principles and and that it didn't start in 1776, right? There's a whole lot of history prior to that and uh, and maybe an acknowledgement of the way in which Europeans came and kind of evolved in this area. But, but really then also to celebrate what are the innovations that America has brought forward. And certainly Ohio has so much to be excited and proud about in all of that. And I think it's a way to broaden, you know, it's just not the 13 original colonies, but it is absolutely kind of the rest of the country and where Ohio, all roads lead to Ohio in lots of ways, as we see every day. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's because of, of just the music or the media I'm consuming. I mean, my wife and I are barreling towards the end of Reservation Dogs and, uh, you know, the this, one of my favorite bands, Portugal the Man, before every show, they did this here at uh, Megacorp Pavilion. 
and they they have members of of native tribes that live in the lands and the places that they are performing come up and speak before each show and it seems to be maybe culturally that there's just more acknowledgement of what you were saying you know not just the, of, of the way the people who were here before the europeans mm-hmm. came in so is that part of this this look at 250 years of ohio and of United States? Absolutely, and particularly now with the UNESCO World Heritage inscription that has been given to the Hopewell Earthworks that are in Ohio, So, and that's a, a collection of a number of earthworks. Serpent Mound is not in that specifically, but Newark, Octagon, Fort Ancient, and some others, and having that acknowledged on the world stage that there is, there was creative, intentional, scientific brilliance. We'll have to look at the language in the actual inscription because it's really beautifully written. It kind of recognizes the creative genius of mankind. And so, you know, Machu Picchu is on that list. Hmm. The Great Wall of China is on that list. The Pyramids of Giza are on that list. And now the state of Ohio, and specifically the Hopewell Earthworks that acknowledge the earliest people, is on that list. And so it gives me goosebumps to kind of talk about we didn't have anything to do with that at Museum Center. I mean, we're just we're part of that overall network of history organizations that um, has archaeology and and indigenous collections in our in our organization. Ohio History Connection really drove that uh, process for the last twenty five years to make that happen. But I think it's something that will be it lends itself perfectly to this moment of celebrating the semi quincentennial of the United States with a look back and a look forward. And I, I, now that you're you're talking about that, it, it's jogging so many memories. I'm sure I, like every generation of Cincinnatians who grew up here, it, have seen those those collections of indigenous works at the museum center. And I remember just being, I don't know if inspired at, at eight years old is, is the right word, but just thinking it was just fascinating and amazing that A, that stuff existed, and B, that we have preserved and collected it here for you know, me in 1996 to go see. The range of information that we have in this region, and what I mean by information is is details about the past, both geologically and from a humanity standpoint, and, um, and you know, getting into more modern times as well with business and, and others, is absolutely astounding. So we just opened the Cincinnati Fossil Gallery, the ancient world's hiding in plain sight, which is full of all the Cincinnati Ordovician fossils. We talk about the fact that you have to kick fossils out of the way to get to other fossils <laughs> in this region because we have such an embarrassment of riches. And on the um, you know earliest people's front, the, the collections that have been unearthed in this area, the archaeology that's been done, really helps t- us to understand that we were not the first people here. And, and the, the way in which the topography shapes who came here originally, the confluence of the rivers, the way in which the animals migrated through the area, Big Bone Lick is the prime example of, of you know, this, is, this was native hunting ground because they were following, the, they were following their food source. And, and so just so much kind of early civilization came through this area because of the way we sit in the world. And, and so, yeah, there's all this incredible information that's here in the community for us to, to avail ourselves of. I think this is also why Cincinnatians don't understand the value of it because there's so much of it and they kind of take it for granted at different times. 
Yeah, and, and you know, speaking of business history, even I remember I, I um, reached out to Cody uh, Hefner at the yeah. museum, and when I was working on a story about P and G, and he found just a, a bunch of, of archival images and logos and stuff, which was perfect for the story I was working on, which is kind of the evolution of, of the idea of, of brand creation and management. Uh, it's just it, things that you you wouldn't, I guess. Things that I never would have expected and are just really cool. Good. I'm glad you're surprised and delighted. That's what we aim for. Yeah, the Made in Cincinnati Gallery, I, don't, I, I hope you've seen it, yes. right? It's, it's fantastic. Right, and what a love letter to the community it is. But it's, again, so much information about all of these companies and these ways in which the economy has evolved from making by hand to making of the marketplace to to these incredible things that are made by machines, right? I've been fascinated, like somebody needs to explain to me the physics of a machine tool. So I really appreciate kind of what it does and how it does it um, and why we were the epicenter of it for a period of time. But it's um, the, the wealth of, of stories of people, of innovations that come from this region is really astounding. And Elizabeth, one of the things that I... That, that you were, I don't know if lucky enough is the right phrase, but that you were able to go through was preserving and enhancing the home for all that collected information. Because that was a $230 million renovation of the museum center, the Union Union Terminal. Right. Uh, what was that like? Well, I mean, it's just a breathtaking building. And it's now in its 90th year. So this is, you know, the 90th, ta-da. Um, hopefully it'll get to 250 years at some point in time, but it's such a special place because it captures so many memories. Like, okay, first let's just start out physically. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. They, uh, took every consideration into the design process as the building was being built. Um, the, the hinges, the doorknobs, the veneer, the, you know, we walked through the flip through the early blueprints and, you know, the design is specified on the painting of one side of the door and then the back side is a different design. I mean, they spared no consideration or, or expense when they were thinking through, like, how beautifully can this building be designed, which is what made it spectacular from um, a historic preservation standpoint, because everything in the building that we touched was essentially a qualified reimbursable expense for um, historic tax credits, which we couldn't have gotten the project done without in any way. So, um, you know, those balls that you see that like expand and then come back together. I, I do that all the time when I describe what we did to the building. We like kind of, we kind of like expanded it, blew it up in all sorts of ways to fix the steel superstructure on the inside. And then, you know, painstakingly put it all back together. I had the recipe for the mortar on my phone for a while because I was so fascinated by the science of that. And the construction guys are just laughing at me like, really, lady, are you crazy? <laughs> but, you know, we took we took bricks um, piece by piece and pieces of limestone off the building very carefully and, and then put it all back together again. So it was a really, really spectacular experience. And it enabled us to put all this new content inside the museum, right? Because previously the museum's, you know, the Natural History Museum goes back to 1818. The Historical Society dates back to 1831. They were separate organizations in the community living elsewhere and had been kind of plodding along in their path for a period of time, long period of time. And then ultimately, you know, each one, for different reasons, decided that it wanted more space and wanted to be able to do different things. And as they separate organizations started to go down that path, 
kind of forces brought them together in a positive way to say you should really take a look at Union Terminal. It had gone through, it had ended its time as a train station. It had gone through the period of the shopping mall experience and the city wasn't quite sure what to do with it. And, you know, the moment that the architects walked in relative to thinking about, you know, different museum space in town, they said, oh, my God, this is it, mm-hmm. right? It just makes perfect sense. So to have the organizations move into the building in the early 90s, as they were still separate organizations at that point in time, Children's Museum was down at Longworth Hall. You know, there was a, a recognition that it should move to Union Terminal. They all kind of merged together in 1995 and to live inside this beautiful space is just the most incredible adaptation of architecture for a community's use. To put the history in the Science Museum and the Children's Museum all inside this incredibly beautiful mo- monument to innovation and transportation and design. I mean, you could not ask for a better experience all the way through. And then to have the Holocaust and Humanity Center join us in 2018 really speaks to the history of the building. You know, the, the gentlemen who went off to war, the liberators of the camps often left through Union Terminal, and the refugees and the survivors of the Holocaust oftentimes took their very first steps in our community, having arrived here in Cincinnati via train. Mm-hmm. So it's just, a, in another moment of chills, it just it's so it's such a perfect use of this building and um it just lends itself to all of this content swirling inside of it so yeah i think i think we are very very lucky to have been able to restore it as a community and then keep it in play for another 150 years and forgive my complete ignorance but um the the big kind of national exhibits that come through i'm thinking of things like the uh, the science of Pixar and the uh, King Tut, right? Was was one we did Cleopatra, Cleopatra, yeah, and Apollo Eleven. We did Destination Moon. And yeah, oh God, that, that yeah, was yeah, that was my favorite. Um, it, and I don't know if these are designed to appeal to both children and adults, or if I'm just a 35 year old kid. <laughs> but um, was that always part of the design and plan for Museum Center? Did that come later? I think it came in the early 2000s. There was a realization that that was a possibility that these these blockbuster shows were traveling around the country on a more regular basis. And that because Cincinnati sits in a six-hour drive time to a significant portion of the population, the exhibit producers saw value in this market as a place to come. And we then figured out, um, you know, at the time that the team that was there figured out how to really maximize the exhibition space within within Union Terminal. So we have 16,000 square feet of space on the lower level of Union Terminal. And let me just put an asterisk. There is no basement at Union Terminal. The lower level is on grade with Dalton Street. Hmm. So people are always like, oh, you're just going to put something in the basement of Union Terminal. I would never do that. There's no basement. Um, the exhibition hall is on the lower level. It's, it's you know, essentially two rectangles that make up that 16,000 square feet of space. And for us, they are readily programmable, meaning we do not have to remove a permanent exhibition in order to make way for a temporary exhibition. So those factors of being in proximity to a lot of people who would come to the show, to having the space readily available, to having that much space readily available, to having it in a place where you can just essentially drive the truck into the building and unload it, Mm. makes it super easy, financially feasible, and, and then we've become the destination of choice in many ways for those exhibit producers. And we've worked with 
iterations of these guys. I mean, they, they're always changing hands or doing different. Some iteration is doing one project and then somebody pulls off and they do another thing. And, you know, they so we know them all pretty well. And, and they are always coming to us to say, what do you want next? Or how can we you got a spot for us? Or so it's a good combination of all sorts of things. And, and how are those chosen? I mean, how, how do you decide to to do the science of Pixar? And then is there a, you know, a balancing of, of bringing in these these blockbuster exhibits and then also continually working on just your permanent exhibits? Yeah, so twofold, right? The um, fixing the building, fixing Union Terminal so it was no longer leaking, it was no longer falling apart, allowed for the permanent exhibition overhaul that you've seen over the last several years. And I cannot stress this enough. If you have not been to Union Terminal since 2018, you are missing out. Get off your couch and come down and see because it is not the museum that you thought it was 20 years ago on your fifth grade field trip. It is a whole new organization with spectacular use of space. The dinosaurs are stretching out in these incredible you know, high ceiling ramps and now we've got the new Cincinnati Fossil Gallery and the History Museum has so much new content, it's amazing. So having the ability to, to kind of work our way through those things has been important to us. Choosing special exhibitions that are going to bring an audience to us of adults or, or families at different times is also part of that consideration factor. And then is it something that is going to relate to world history, science in some way, something that might, you know, be part of the early childhood development process, right? Those are the things that we really like to celebrate. You know, we'll do art sometimes if it's got a connection or it's the window to another one of those topics. And so, you know, Science of Pixar is a perfect example. It's an engineering exhibition. It's a project management explanation of things wrapped up in Disney magic and and all sorts of things. You know, the the Star Wars costume exhibition that we did several years ago, breathtakingly beautiful, was on the art museum circuit for a while. But of course, it's full of pop culture. It's full of kind of the technology that went into creating the costumes. So kind of demystifying some of that process. It's also all about creativity. And, um, and we couldn't pass up Star Wars, right? So, so it's a lot of different factors that kind of make sense out of things. We brought the Princess Diana exhibition in several years ago, and some of my board members thought, oh, I don't care about fashion. I don't care about, you know, that's, that's old news. And, of course, I was like, no, no, it's spectacular. We're going we're gonna to do it. We were able to build, in addition to the, this glorious display of, of her life, her uh, fashion that she used within the work that she did um, to tell the story of, of the philanthropic good that she had done around the globe, we were able to elevate the local Cincinnati stories and we created the companion gallery called Daughters of the Queen City, which showcased wedding gowns that we had in our history collection, then tied to periods of time in which different women throughout the community were doing incredible things. They were saving the zoo. They were founding the YMCA and the YWCA. They were founding Stepping Stones and Greater Cincinnati Foundation. They were building buildings up at Hebrew Union College. They were just you know, doing the philanthropic good that this community needed over a period of time. So I love to be able to take a special exhibition that's coming in from somewhere else and put the Cincinnati flavor into it and um, that's another way to kind of showcase and give relevance to what's going on here in town. And, and what, what's exciting most to you right now? 
Mm, okay, so we're continuing to build out all these wonderful things within the museum, as I talked about, these new permanent galleries. Um, the Cincinnati Fossil Gallery is stunningly beautiful. It is scientifically important for the region and the world, and it is uniquely Cincinnati. And so I just, I, I have been crying tears of joy and jumping up and down with excitement around our Ordovician fossils. And people look at me like I'm insane. But, you know, you know it because you've run around in the creek beds here in the community and, and you appreciate that. So, so that creates a lot of energy for us because it's so beautiful. We had 1,200 paleontologists at the museum last night. They're here for the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meeting that travels around the globe. They are just ooing and aahing over the collection and all the research that they want to do with both our dinosaurs, our vertebrate and our invertebrate uh, fossils. So that's really one of the key things that's, that got me excited. We're starting to do more refresh in the Children's Museum and um, I'm excited because that allows us to elevate the conversation around early childhood learning, the importance of literacy, the importance of numeracy, like how do you build critical thinking skills and curiosity at the youngest point in time? I mean, I say this all the time, workforce development should start in the Children's Museum. That's where we are trying to create a sense of, of confidence in learning and kind of an open-endedness. So, you know, while you're playing in the Kroger store in the Children's Museum, or you're building in the construction zone, or you're tossing the balls around in the energy pit. I mean, you're just like, you're learning something every moment that you're there. And so, you know, the fact that we can pull all that together and then kind of create this cadence of curiosity that we keep feeding you throughout your life when you come back to us at, as an eight-year-old or a 13-year-old or a 25-year-old or a 55-year-old, like this is the, the thing that really gets me pumped up. Awesome. I'm going to have to get my daughter down there because she's one, she's nine, uh, and whenever we're out in the yard, she will bring back any any fossil she finds. Like, Dad, I found another fossil. I'm like, yes, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, my God. She's going to be out of her mind walking through and seeing. I mean, there are probably 400 specimens in the gallery right oh now. Gosh. They are breathtaking. <laughs> and she'll be able to say, like, oh, look, I have that in the backyard, and I found one of these. And, yeah, yeah, incredible stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being with us it's today. It's my pleasure. I could talk for hours with you guys. Above the Folds is a podcast by the Cincinnati Business Courier, hosted by me, Andy Brownfield, and Tom Demeropoulos. The podcast is produced and edited by me, and our theme music was written by Dylan McCartney. Come back next week for another edition of Above the Fold. Above the Fold.